When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, it's Patrick Prince, the editor for Goldmine Magazine, and this is our first Goldmine Magazine podcast. Hope you enjoy it. For those of you who are new to Goldmine, it's a music collector's magazine that started in 1974 and it covers not only music collecting, but all the classic music artists people love to collect. And that's through in-depth interviews and articles. Now, if you want to know more about Goldmine Magazine, you can go to goldminemag.com. You can learn how to subscribe and learn where to get Goldmine Magazine on the newsstands and in your local record store. That's goldminemag.com. Now, for this podcast episode, a lot of Beatles to cover, specifically the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. June of this year marks the 50th anniversary of that iconic album. And not only did we celebrate that in our June print edition, but we're also covering it here. Uh, first, we'll talk to J.J. French, famed guitarist of Twisted Sister, who is, if you don't know, a Beatles fanatic and collector. Uh, we'll talk to Bruce Spizer, well-known author and expert of all things Beatles. He has a new book coming out on Sgt. Pepper. And our contributor, John Borak, about the new Sgt. Pepper editions. A sort of unboxing review of sorts. But we'll have other surprises. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this message. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine, the music collector's magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. All right, we're back, and we're here with J.J. French. You know him as the guitarist and founder of Twisted Sister. I know him as a Beatles collector and fanatic, I don't know. Is fanatic too strong of a word, JJ? Wow. I mean, to I guess I guess I would be referred to as uh, as an avid Beatle fan, but I don't know. I think I think avid Beatle fan is actually an understatement. I mean, I am one of a collection of guys who spends their waking hours thinking about something that hasn't been around in in fifty years and whose uh, subject our wives are totally sick of discussing. 
And uh, we approach the Beatles the way we approach a religious tome. We study right. it and we analyze it and we review it. And we try to find new meaning on a, on a daily basis. So I don't know. Does that mean I'm a fanatic? I don't know. I don't think I so. I'm a little bit more. You know, I'm sitting in my office, Pat. Like literally, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at. I'm looking to my left. I'm looking to my right of stuff I have in my office. Yeah. And it's just Beatles. Every it's like it's Ruddles or Beatles or Beatles related. So I guess if Paul McCartney came to my house, he would consider me a stalker. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Well, you've seen worse, I'm sure. You know what? I have, and frankly, I don't want to know those people. <laughs> there's, you know, there's levels of um, of sane insanity, and then levels of insane. I know, insanity. I know, I know. And I think my level is sane insanity. You know, I can yeah. keep it. In, I keep it in perspective. You're you're safe. Uh, yeah. Now, you started a column in Goldmine called Now We're 64. How did we come up with that? That's because the column has turned out to be really good. I, I think we were just talking. You did this uh, thing on 45s because you collect 45s or have been collected for some time. So we right. did an article on that. And you decided to call it Now We're 64, which is perfect because you're now 64, right? And uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's got irony written all over it, and the fact that I am 64, and the fact probably that many Beatle fans are on or near that area, right. especially the ones who read your magazine. Yeah. Um, it was just a cute way of, of basically saying, you know, yeah, guess what? Um, we never thought we'd be 64. I mean, right. if you really yeah. think about the crazy irony of it, I was 15 when Sgt. Pepper came out. I'm 64. So when I listened to that song that day, the first day, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. to myself, who the hell is 64? Like... Who's ever going to be 64? Are you going to be in a wheelchair? Are you going to be alive? And here I am, 64, discussing the same damn <laughs> album as, as I did, you know. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, in the latest column, you talk about the um, buying that album on yeah. the day it was released, June 2nd, 67. Uh, but first, um, you know, we're going to talk about it later in, on this uh, podcast with our contributor, John Borak. But you just received the copy of the 50th anniversary Super Deluxe Edition today, right? I got it yesterday. In yes, fact, um, I, right now I'm listening to the remix of Sgt. Pepper. Yep. What do you think of all those little remixes? It's, it shows like the evolution of a song really well, I thought. Well, I have yet to get into them, but let me just say this about the Beatles in general, it is an unbelievably never ending curiosity. I have that somewhere down the line, Paul or maybe, maybe Ringo or definitely Neil Aspinall. But at some point, somebody said, we're going to be so famous that we are going to be able to continue to send stuff out year in and year out for certain anniversaries. And I don't mean to be cynical about this, yeah, but Neil yeah. Aspinall did have a famous quote. He said, I'm not in the music business. I'm in the Beatle business. Right. So, if, so with that quote in mind, do I think that 10 years ago they thought, well, in 10 years there's going to be a 50th anniversary and what are we going to do to commemorate the 50th? Like, what more can we do? Well, here's what they did. They threw the kitchen sink in. And I don't know if there's a 100th anniversary edition, <laughs> um, what's going to happen. Like, are there stuff that still we don't know? Because, yeah. you know, when you want to get into the evolution of a song, 
I'm a guy in a band, right? So there's always the evolution of a song. You know, we're not going to take it. Started out as an acoustic song, right? Like he right. sat down on a stool and he played it. Right. Most songs begin with, uh, you know, some rudimentary attempt at making at making the other musicians understand what you're trying to do, right? I think I'll, I'll tell you what. There's a movie called Sympathy for the Devil about the Rolling Stones and the evolution of the song Sympathy for the Devil is called One Plus One. I think Jean-Luc Godard did it. Right. And it was the first time, I, I think the movie came out in 1969 or 70, and it was the first time I ever saw, witnessed a song go from acoustic guitar to the finished product. And it showed in the context of the movie this, the evolution of Sympathy for the Devil. And frankly, by the end of the movie, I didn't want to hear Sympathy for the Devil anymore because I heard it now. 400 times as it evolved. But but for guys like me or collectors like me who can't get enough of trying to figure out what the hell is going on, um, it's an endless source of investigation. So I will get into the bits and pieces of it, but you, but you should know this. And I don't know if you are aware, but there has been an underground amount of Beatle uh, uh, excerpts and extracts and, and 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 outtakes that have been around for years, right. like for years. And and about twenty years ago, when I was working on the Seven Dust album in Atlanta, the guy who owned the studio takes me into a room and he shows me a stack of DAT tapes. And I mean a stack, like a hundred. And he goes, all Beatle outtakes. Hmm. I said, how'd you get that? He goes, I know some guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy in Abbey Road, and they made copies. So I have heard many Beatles songs in their infancy. Yes. Um, and, and so it's not what it's always interesting to me which ones they choose to release. Yes. Right. As opposed to the fact that it's that that they exist. I already know they exist. It's what they choose to release, the amount they choose to release, when they choose to release them, um, that kind of sucks you in and, and gets you more addicted to it over time. So I'm sure as I analyze these over time. And I see the evolution. It won't be things that, let's say, I, I never heard before. But as a musician, I'm always fascinated by the uh, the layering on, especially because in those days, you know, they used a four-track machine. Right. And as they layered on, they had to keep transferring tracks, which led up to more uh, studio tape hiss. So how they were able to ultimately deal with the master tapes as they were bouncing them down, as every idea was layered on top of it and still retain the fidelity is always a matter of art. And that's where George Martin and that's where Jeff Emmerich or Ken Scott or whoever else with the engineers came in. These guys are really masters of the, of the technology. And Giles, I thought did a good job on this uh, mix as well. This stereo mix. I don't know if you oh, gave it a listen. Uh, you know what? I, 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 should I give you my, my thumbnail response to the mix so far? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's my thumbnail. The Beatles were always a mono band, and they were stereo because they had to be stereo, but you know they didn't care about stereo. It's well known. Someone else mixed it. They were there for the mono mixes. They didn't care about stereo mixes. So if you really want to hear the Beatles right, you listen to their mono albums. By the way, if you really want to hear them right, you listen to their mono EPs, which, by the way, I have. Okay, so mm -hmm. if I really want to get crazy and anal, I listen to the mono, I listen to the 45 EPs, and they really, they sound the best. Because remember this, Pat, when the Beatles came out in 64, we were all listening in mono because all we had was AM radio, right? That's yeah, all we yeah. had. So we always listened to the Beatles in mono, 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 mono. It wasn't until 
even though stereo albums came out, we didn't pay much attention to it. The Beatles were on the radio. The Beatles were in mono. Why did they sound so good on the radio? Because their vocals were always centered, and they always kind of made sure that the vocals were the epicenter of every track, and they were really careful to make sure they were dead center, and it was everything else was around the vocals, where the stereo stuff was always, they didn't quite know, no one knew what to do. You know, do I put the drums on the left, the guitar on the right? Do I separate them hard? Do I separate them soft? Do I put some reverb in the middle? And on top of it, what makes it even more confusing or more interesting to an American fan is that they added reverb in the American um, mastering process, mm. which they described in those re-releases by Capitol Records. Why do the records sound different? Not just because there was different tracks, but because American radio demanded reverb. Mm. So they added reverb. So what you have with the British monos is you have mono and no reverb. So they right. sound different. So let's get to Sgt. Pepper. Yep. Sgt. Pepper, I have a British first first you know, 67 pressing on EMI in stereo. I don't have the mono version of it. That version on vinyl sounds better. And again, hmm. I don't have the mono version of it. But that version sounds better than any other version except for a British mono, which I don't own, okay, right. which I didn't have. Of every other version I had, including every digital transfer, it didn't matter what. I would always go back to the British pressing, put it on and go, why does it sound better? Why does it sound fuller? Even though it was stereo, why does it sound fuller? Well, what what Giles Martin, is it Giles or Giles? By the I think way? it's Giles, yeah. It's Giles. What Giles Martin did... Do you remember when they they went to the At Vatican? least I called them Giles. <laughs> it, uh, hopefully it's Giles. When they went to the Vatican and they cleaned the 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 all the the years of schmutz off the Pieta, you know, and all yeah. of a sudden it was Technicolor and oh my God, mm. what was underneath all that schmutz? Right. Well, what he did was two things. One was he went to the master tapes and was able to bring all those tracks in without without the compression necessary to to bounce down. He didn't have to bounce down. And secondly. He was able to bring out the full fidelity of each track and boost it to where it needed to be. So what you're listening to now is you're listening to like a properly mixed, especially for CD, because CD didn't exist back then. And, and most stuff was never, most analog was never mixed for CD. CD has a whole different theory behind it than analog does. He, uh, he made a master mix, and I can't wait to get the analog because the double vinyl is on its way, but it didn't get here mm -hmm. yet, so I haven't heard it. But so far, the, 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 so far, the stereo remix sounds spectacular. And I yeah. believe yeah. it or not, I played a gig last night, and the drummer at the gig was Rich Pagano from the uh, Fo Fab Faux. Oh, right. And so, of course, you know, the Fab Faux being... The fab foe we got into a beetle discussion of course what else you know <laughs> and uh yeah he was saying how even though it's more technicolor it's 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 more in your face he kind of he thinks that some things got lost and i kind of get it there's a certain romanticism about what you've been hearing all your life and you know that to be true north you, you yes. know what i'm saying no like, i agree so I agree. much that you almost even if someone says it's improved your ear continually as right. a fallback position goes back to what you are absolutely familiar with. And so I, I said to him, I think part of it is you don't want to let go. And, and, and by the way, it's not a criticism, but it's not a criticism necessarily. It's just saying, I get it. 
Um, I get it, but there are so many treasures here. I mean, I'm hearing things in the mix that I never heard before. Yeah. I'm hearing guitar parts. I'm hearing drums. I'm hearing things that I've never heard before. So the drums, am, especially, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. God, the drums are amazing. But then Rich explained to me that the reason why the drums he did he did say this, and he's a drummer. He said the reason why the drums sound so good is because Ringo's drums were on a separate track and they were always squashed down, but yeah. now they're able to be brought in as their own track. Yes. And they sound freaking great. Which what does that tell you? That tells you that though when, when they did the recording, the actual day-to-day -day recording of their parts, all those parts are recorded correctly. All those parts are recorded on their own tape, meaning you could refer to your own quarter inch master. You follow what I'm saying? Yep. It wasn't just overlaid on something else that would get lost. What it means to say is that somewhere in their archives, these sons of bitches were smart enough to realize that they have to hold on to these separate recording tracks mm. and make them available for like a, a, an archaeologist and later on in life, <laughs> like we are, and pull them apart. So I think it sounds, right now it's got my enthusiastic multi-thumbs up. I think it sounds fabulous. Okay, so let's take a time machine back. You're, you, you know, it's in June or just turns June. In fact, in May uh, 67, there was a lot of hype going on, right, in the radio stations? They were hyping yeah. up the album? Well, you know, in those days, and you know that article I wrote, Loving the Beatles in Real Time, yes. which preceded the Sgt. Pepper one. So, I mean, I had the luxury of living Beatlemania, right, at its source. So, um, and they were, and they, they just kept on releasing single after single. I mean, there was no space in time where the Beatles didn't have, if it was coming up the charts, it was going down the charts. Somebody else was coming up the charts, and then it was going down the charts. Always new, 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 new. But when Penny Lane and Sergeant and, uh, and uh, Strawberry Fields came out, which was in February, mm -hmm. I remember all of the talk, you know, on radio that this is going to be this great new album. This was AM radio, right? AM radio, because FM progressive radio hadn't really started yet. Okay. And so there was all this discussion about this next record and because Strawberry Fields sounded so bizarre. I mean, Tomorrow Never Knows certainly was bizarre, but Strawberry, but it wasn't a single. You know, Strawberry Fields was a single. And I remember rushing home on the night of, I think it was February 17th, because one of the TV shows was debuting the video of Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And my parents had taken me to a show, an off-Broadway show called McBird, starring Stacey Keach and William Devane. This is how much I care and I know. Isn't this disgusting? Isn't this truly pathetic that I remember this day, you know? And I remember telling my parents, I don't want to stay for the show with the Beatle video on TV. <laughs> I, I was like screaming at them. And, you know, I was too young. They didn't want me to get on the train by myself. So, like, they came home. I remember turning on the TV. And there was Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. Oh, my God. What hath got wrought? You know, like, what's yeah. going on? Right. Then, well, then, you know, then the word started to come around. And then FM radio started. And then this buzz started about the album. And and everybody knew it was coming out. And this was, you know, 67 was such an unbelievable year. It was an immensely unbelievable year. And the album comes, and we all knew the day. Everybody knew, every record store, posters, you know, Beatles, new release, Sgt. Pepper, and we just knew it. And, you know, so whoever bought it, I don't know if it was my copy or Freddie Rivera or the Echeverry family who I lived with, who I lived around the corner from me. But I remember when we, maybe there were multiple copies, we all sat around and passed around the jacket, but it was like 30 of us sitting around a stereo system. It was like, it was like kids going to like a, 
you know, a Christian youth group or something. Like what's fu What's fun about your article is it, it's kind of like its own um, focus group. Um, yeah, yeah. You you talk about what you guys are experiencing, and and uh, I'm not Rain Man, so I can't remember the date. But wasn't was that television show, the Dick Clark American Bandstand, where they played? No, no, okay. no. You know why it wasn't? Because right. Dick Clark's American Bandstand was on in the afternoon. Okay, gotcha. And this was definitely in the evening. We went to okay. the show. We came back, and that night it was on TV. So if it wasn't Ed Sullivan, it was a Sunday. I don't remember. It was an evening show, and they showed the video that night. I remember it being in the evening, so it was not Dick Clark's American okay. Band. Well, when I've watched cl clips of Dick Clark um, in his little focus group sitting with the fans, after right. uh, you know, even before they played that video uh, – all the fans kind of expressed that the Beatles weren't in anymore. You know, even one kid said, oh, they're kind of out like the twist. But when they played that video, uh, I think it was Strawberry Fields Forever, uh, you know, one of the sessions of Sgt. Pepper. Uh, and uh, the, the response was, man, this is weird. You know, they're mustachioed, longer hair. They look weird. It feels weird. It sounds weird. And but one kid in the whole audience said, "That's great! It's great!" <laughs> wow, you know what? Here's what really kind of gets me. Your description is fascinating to me, and and reading Bruce Spicer's book, yeah, about about all the critical comments about it, because because that didn't that world didn't exist in New York City. I mean, you were a Beatle fan. You were a Beatle fan. We didn't say they were over. They were done. They were past. There was none of that. It didn't impact us. We were just in love with this record and and played it incessantly. I mean, incessantly all summer long. It was the foundation album because no single was released from the record. Right. Well, you said in your you said in your um, in your article in your column that you were overwhelmed by it, or all of you guys were, but in a good way. And there you so were. Looking it was at a lot to take in. It was a lot to take in. Here's the deal, Pat. We thought it was like a secret message. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, like that was the thing. Like what is being told to us on this record? Like what is being passed down like in some sort of holy grail kind of a way? Well, That's what the record was to me. Well, I mean, you see all those uh, people on the collage, right? It's not like you had Google in those days. <laughs> so you couldn't just, I mean, who was Mr. Kite? You know, you couldn't just Google these things. You might have, you know, you had no social media to, like, really talk to a lot of people. So, of course, you thought it was something secret, something mysterious, right? Well, I wondered off the bat. I said, wow, Mae West knows she's on the cover. That's cool. Muhammad Ali, that's cool. Welcome the Rolling Stones. What's that about? Like, you know, I wasn't quite sure what they were saying by when that was on there because because these bands never did cross-referencing right. before I mean, not on the cover of an album. You never saw the cross. And then, and by the way, how did the Rolling Stones respond to that? They put the four Beatles heads buried into the cabbage patch on the frickin' uh, Satanic Majesty's Request cover, you know, <laughs> six months later. You know, like you look at it, is that a pineapple on Harrison's head? What the hell is that, you know? <laughs> so um, so uh, as I said, wow, they're acknowledging welcome the Rolling Stones. What the hell does that mean? I mean, there were so many things about it. There were so many things about the cover that was so mysterious. You know, we're not even getting into the Paul is Dead stuff. That didn't happen until, you know, years later. Right. But, of course, there were hints of it on there. I don't know if it was, uh, you know, made no, up. No, we didn't. 
we didn't know. Right. I mean, we didn't know that the word without you by Paul's head meant without you. You know, we, <laughs> we hadn't yet come to that level of insanity. Right. That was still two years off before that craziness started to come up. And then, by the way, once that craziness happened, which we'll get into it another time, you know, then we started scouring everything for every reason. But I will tell you this. Can I use what kind of language? Can I use the language? Can I use language on this? Or can you curse or not? No, not. probably not. Just right. OK, so here's the thing. So the gibberish at the end of the track. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, the gibberish is not on every single version of Sgt. Pepper. Correct. That gibberish did not make it into the U.S. That gibberish, I have it on my British EP, right? Yeah. So um, I always wondered what that gibberish was, like a lot of people wondered. Like, what? talk about a secret message. What right. the hell was that? <laughs> so, uh, you know, back in the day... I had a turntable with a Stanton cartridge, which you could play a record backwards, right? So um, I played that backwards. And I'm not going to say what it sounded like. Well, it says, we'll blank you like Superman, okay? Yeah. That's what I thought it said. We'll blank you like Superman. And I always thought, you know, that's like... Are they actually saying that, you know, yeah. or is that just me thinking? Okay. It could like, be, it could be a little bit of both, you know, uh, I, you know, when you listen to the Giles Martin stereo mix, you can hear it a lot clearer. A lot clearer. Yeah. Right. So Paul McCartney, you know, I was always looking for some sort of a quote from Paul McCartney uh, having to do with, with that line, like I was always going, you know, did, he, did they say it? Did they say it? Did they say it? What did they say? And I finally found an obscure interview with Paul, um, and that was in an insert of the 20th uh, anniversary of the release of the album. It was 1960. It was 1987. There was a there was a British HMV limited edition series of first mastered CDs, right? With their own boxes. I think when you were at my house, yes. you, saw it. you saw it, right? Yeah. Okay. And and I'm trying to find it now because I'm, I'm actually holding on to it. I'm looking at this paper. And in it, Paul addresses that gobbledygook at the end of it. And basically what he says is, you know, um, it was nonsense, but you know, people thought it said, we'll blank you like Superman, right? This is what he said. <laughs> and he goes, so So Paul goes on and says, so I got the, a turntable and I played it backwards. And, and he goes, and damn it, it says, we'll blank you like Superman. And I went, we didn't do that. We actually <laughs> didn't say that, but it was right. He goes, it was right there. It was right there. He said, I was stunned and shocked that it was actually there. So the bottom line is, is that there was so much and it was never done before. And it yeah. was like, it was like a treat. It was a yeah. treat for all of us. So let, let, you also reviewed Bruce Beiser's book, um, Sergeant Pepper, A Fan's Perspective. And we'll, tr we'll talk to Bruce in a minute. I'm going to call him via Skype. But the book sort of ties into your experience, obviously, uh, what you wrote about. And the views of the fans and their experience with the album is is kind of a... Uh, pretty interesting in this book and I like how you started your review you quoted um, 
it might be too advanced for the average pop fan to appreciate. Right. That's right. Good. It's true. That quote was taken out of Bruce's book, which right. I have to tell you, I found Bruce always makes great stuff. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and you always wonder what, what, where he's coming from. Right. And, and I couldn't wait to ask him because it was like when I met him at Beetlefest for the first time a couple of months ago, and I said, what possesses you to be this crazy? I mean, <laughs> like only you could decide that you want to write a book about what version of a poly, a poly, a polydor, rather, a polyphone single is pressed in Wick, Derbyshire, England at 2 p.m., you know, with a, with a sleeve <laughs> that has a, a deformed letter on it at the bottom part with a number four. It's like, who cares? Bruce does. Yeah, there are people who and, do care. Yes. And not only does Bruce, but because Bruce does, we do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when so I was thinking, you know, what the hell is Bruce doing for Sergeant Pepper? And he did a really unique thing. Yeah. He altered how you viewed the record, not just lauded the release of the record. Mm -hmm. He gave you insight into the time, which I always knew he would. Right. Because, come on, sociology is important in the context of the Beatles especially. Yes. Because they mirrored the times. I'll, I'll go so far when you get Bruce on is to ask him. I have I have some other questions to throw to Bruce. But his book was great. And, uh, you know, it was always full of great insights. But the craziest one was that he, he kept all those letters. And he yeah. kept all those comments. And I never knew that. I never knew him. I yeah. never knew him. As much as I know. I did not know there was a body of fans who basically walked away from them at that time. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, let me try to call call him up, see if I don't mess this up on Skype while you're on the phone. Well, anyway, Bruce, Bruce, this is JJ. Uh, you guys met before at Beatles Fest. We meet again on Skype. Um, JJ, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, man. Okay. <laughs> I, defer, I defer to Bruce. When you say to me, are you a Beatles fanatic? I go, no, there's not. There are fanatics. And then there's Bruce Spicer. Come on. There's another level. But we all can't be fanatics without Bruce Spicer because Bruce feeds the beast of the insatiable desire to religiously equate this band with the Torah. All right. That's basically what he does. Like every day I, I get up and I stare at my books and Bruce's books are in there and I go, hey, and I start bowing down and I take the book out like one of the Torah rolls. And I go, I'm going to read one paragraph today. On the 16th of May, the label was printed at the Whippetshire Derbyshire plant, but the, the color of the ink was off by three degrees. It's like, who the hell? Oh, my God. I love it. And by, by the way, and Bruce does it on the record side, and Andy Babuke does it on the musical side. Oh, yeah. Well, his instrument side. stuff is fabulous. Yeah. So, oh, by the way, Bruce, uh, last night I played a show, and the drummer was Rich Pagano from, um, from Fab Foe. Oh, yeah. So we had a nice uh, confrontation. I mean, discussion. And <laughs> about <the new> remix. <laughs> well, Bruce, I wanted to ask you, you know, since JJ was talking about your previous books, what made you decide, okay, 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper coming up, to make it a fan's perspective? Well, you know, the original thing was I'd just written an essay about, uh, I guess, almost a year ago, because I knew that the 50th anniversary was coming up. And I just thought, look, I'll just have an essay in the can, you know, and maybe it'll go in Beetle Fan or Goldmine or, uh, you know, some British magazine. But to just have something ready in case someone said, hey, you want to write something for us? And then 
I realized when we got closer to the 50th anniversary around February that, you know, I had this essay and my concern was that if I submitted it to a magazine because of its length, it would be edited and also uh, concern over the fact that I envisioned all these images to go with the essay and that wouldn't happen in a magazine. So I thought maybe I'll just put out my own magazine and right. then, uh, you know, started getting the idea of, well, getting other people to help tell the story. And I realized what I had written was a fan's perspective and, you know, in the fans, F-A-N-S apostrophe, sort of a plural fans. And you'll notice in my essay, I never used the word I, I used the word we, because I really felt Sergeant Pepper was a communal experience. Uh, and so, you know, I had that perspective. And then, um, you know, when I got a piece from Al Sussman and Bill King, who were with Beatle fans, so, you know, that kind of held on to the fan thing. And then also uh, Pierce Hemmingson from what was going on in Canada, once again, written by uh, someone who was a big fan. And Frank Daniels, uh, who's a big fan, writing about influences on and of Pepper. And I had those kind of put together. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see what other fans thought? Hmm. And that's when the call kind of came where I sent out an email blast to people on my list and called a few people and encouraged other people to, um, right. you know, put out the word. And uh, uh, one individual, Gay Linville, out in California, I think we counted about a dozen of the 80 or so responses were people that she had contacted. So it it worked out well. Um, the initial concept being, you know, just everyday fans. And uh, then, of course, me realizing musicians are big Beatle fans, too. And I think the first one I got was uh, from Barry Winslow of the Royal Guardsmen of Snoopy fame. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and his was wonderful because I thinking, you know, here he is, you know, getting ready to go into the studio in the summertime to record a Christmas record, you know, Snoopy's Christmas, and he's hearing Sgt. Pepper on the radio, and, uh, you know, that kind of, I almost felt like pulling out my, uh, you know, Royal Guardsman CD and listening to Snoopy's Christmas and Pepper back to back. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you know, and then it was, okay, well, you know, I know some musicians, I know Pat Denizio of the Smithereens, and I called up Pat, and I uh, friend of mine uh, knew Peter Torque, and she sent him an email. Peter's was particularly fascinating because, uh, you know, I contacted her about it, and uh, I followed up with her, and she said, look, I've been busy. I hadn't had a chance to, uh, you know, email him yet. I'll email him now. And like about 25 minutes later, I get an email from her. Uh, Here's what Peter had to say. So, you know, it was spontaneous and from the heart, and that was kind of cool. Mm. And then... Uh, the other really cool one was, um, you know, Billy Joel, where I knew someone who knew Billy, and Billy called up and, you know, wonderful interview, and uh, went ahead and from his interview put something together. Mark Lewison was a pleasant surprise in that uh, I had remembered reading back in the book Shout that uh, he had, you know, put on the Sergeant Pepper badges and stripes and the fake mustache when he was a kid, <laughs> and I, call, I called up Mark and said, Mark, by... Any chance would you be willing to confirm that story for me as a fan recollection in my book? And he said, uh, yeah, I, I'll do that. And I said, and is there by any chance a picture? And he said, yeah, my mom took a picture of it. So I said, great. And uh, that's how that happened. <laughs> well, I think JJ and his friends put that cardboard cutout on the side 
I don't know if they did anything to it. They were so. No, I think, I, like I said, I think we rolled joints on it or something. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but I think we when we pulled it out. We were like, "What is that?" Like uh, we, I mean, it was all marketing and and there was so many strange things going on about it. Like they were attacking us. They were attacking us from so many different angles. Yeah. And if you're 15, you know, you're hearing the music and you're looking at a cover that doesn't that, that's so overwhelming in the back of the lyrics. And and like I said, I thought we were being handed like some sort of a holy grail from a spaceship <laughs> that, that was telling us that something crazy was going to happen. And that craziness did happen because the summer of 67 was they were the portal. Right. They were they like I said, they kind of marched us into the summer of 67 and the summer of 67 is crazy. I mean, the whole year is crazy. If you think about the releases that came out that year. Yeah. Even if the Doors album debuted in January, it didn't hit until August. All right, so yeah. uh, and Hendrix didn't really hit until September. Wheels of and, and Cream, Disraeli Gears didn't hit until December. Neither did Satanic Majesty's Request and Dylan's uh, John Wesley Harding. I mean, there's some really unbelievable uh, birds. There's so many great records that came out that year, but it just seemed that that was the starting gun, right? Yeah. That was the pistol. That was the one that yeah. set the whole motion in fire. Not to mention that it just Brought in the summer of love. And then, you know, John Lennon's famous quote, my favorite song of the summer was Whiter Shade of Pale, dominated the radio stations. But what I found really interesting, by the way, in Bruce's book, reading it, because Bruce always keeps a sociological context with everything. And that's why he loved reading it, was how much the monkeys dominated American radio, except for yeah. Sgt. Pepper. I mean, the monkeys dominated Billboard that year. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and, I had... I had listen. I, I you know I appreciated the monkeys, but I didn't. I wasn't reading Billboard at the age of fifteen, and I didn't really get their album dominance of the year. And they were un. I mean, imagine being the monkeys when that happened, and how they looked at themselves, and how they looked at the Beatles. And by the way, the monkeys are pretty hip because after all, they brought Jimi Hendrix out on tour with them, right? So, well, I, mean, I think uh, you know you you had a point where. They're putting out these incredibly catchy hit singles in albums that are selling really well, that have some really good tracks on them. And, uh, you know, you've got these young Beatle fans that because the Beatles were waited for eternity between Revolver and Penny Lane, you know, my gosh, a half a year or so, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you had young people defecting over to the monkeys and, uh, you know, Strawberry Fields come out and, and you look at that picture sleeve, and it's, oh, my God, they have mustaches. And, I mean, honestly, I didn't get Strawberry Fields forever the first couple of plays hearing it on the radio. Mm. And a friend of mine in the school band said, no, no, you need to really, you know, get the record and listen to it. It's a great song. You know, Penny Lane, of course, you know, appealed to me right away, but it took a while. So, you know, you had these defections in a way to the monkeys, and here the monkeys are making their statement, we're going to put out our own album headquarters and, and they were very proud of the album you know they uh you know mickey learned how to play the drums and uh, mm. the whole bit and they go ahead and, and put this album out and it's number one on the charts and that's great and all of a sudden pepper comes out and boom that ended that i think though they admired what the beatles are done certainly uh you know peter torch comments were clear that he wasn't upset he was awestricken by what he heard and the monkeys still hung in there you know they were Number two behind Sergeant Pepper for eleven straight weeks with their headquarters album. <laughs> they must have felt though, I mean, because they were a fake band, they almost they were almost like the WWF as it relates to football. You know what I mean? 
I mean, they really are. They were they were fake, and I mean, and they were wonderful, and I loved them. I'll tell you, Bruce, it's interesting because only because of your insights, I asked my singer Dee Snyder. I said because Dee is four years younger than me, uh-huh. and I said so. I, I said to him, I was fifteen when Pepper came out. You were eleven. He goes, I didn't get Pepper. He yeah. said. Pepper came out and I defected. You ready for this? To Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Monkeys. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, what is that just because he's from Long Island? No, sorry. No offense. Is that because... <laughs> um, uh, that was a joke. That was a joke, D. I'm kidding. But seriously, when you, I read your book, I went, wow, there were mass defections going on here. And yeah. uh, I didn't... You know, because, the, because in my world... Uh, Bruce, in my world, the only defection was Richard Goldstein's scathing review in the New York Woo! Times which I sat back and like was knocked off my chair. And like I was, you know, like I was saying to Pat, you know, in certain countries who they'll be nameless, you'd be taken out and shot with a review. Like, <laughs> like that. You know, you would mean, just be, they would send people to your house at night, arrest <laughs> you, put you against the wall and shoot you. Right. So recently Goldstein did an interview. I don't know if you read it. He did it. it yeah. The Times. And yeah, about how it was the Washington how, Post. I oh, the Post about how yeah. he was like terrified. <laughs> like, what did I do? You know, I didn't mean it. And uh, his revisionist thinking. And and I, by the way, I didn't know he was only 21 years old at the time. I was blown away by it. Well, yeah, it th- seemed like it was written by a 61 year old. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know what? I thought he was a 61 year old. Or 64. I, or uh, but- he, yeah. <laughs> no, that he was a guy, like, he was a college kid. You know, I was totally stunned because, as I as I said to Pat before, that just ushered in the crawdaddy slash uh, cynical John Landau reviews of Cream and and because there were no negative reviews before that, right? That was like a big negative review. And the next thing you know, you know, uh, John Landau writes a review of Are You Experienced, Rolling Stone, in which he calls Jimi Hendrix a mediocre guitar player, you know. <laughs> And, and he says, Wheels of Fire was nothing more than a cliche-ridden bunch of drivel, which caused Clapton to have a nervous breakdown and break cream up. I mean, think about it. These days, does a critic have any kind of impact like that at all? No. no and I mean, and, you know, there's just so much stuff on the, the Internet where if you, you know, if you want to read somebody criticizing your work, just Google your name. I'm sure something will pop up. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I said... This brings me back to a quote in your book, um, Bruce, where it said, uh, the question remained, and J.J. brought this up in his review, is Sgt. Pepper too advanced for the average pop fan to appreciate? And that was a big question then when it came out. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I remember uh, certainly my initial effect with uh, Strawberry Fields was, you know, so different that it didn't I didn't get it at first, but after right. a couple of listens, I did get it. Well, imagine a whole album of that, you know, not just <laughs> one song. And I think, you know, there was always that danger. But but what I also pointed out in the book was that it was an opportunity for the Beatles to gain new fans that sure some of the younger fans would defect to the monkeys and call what they were doing a bunch of rubbish. But a lot of the other fans would uh, go anywhere the Beatles took them because yeah. it was such a fascinating journey. And also, you know, we were maturing too. I was, uh, you know, the Beatles were a couple of years older when they did Sgt. Pepper. I was a couple of years older too. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing was you had college students who uh, before were not big Beatle fans. You know, they were folk purists or whatever, or jazz or, you know, bebop or something hip. 
and really thought that the Beatles were doing teeny bopper music, uh, something their younger sister would listen to. Well, they couldn't say that about Pepper. You know, it was a very mature uh, musical experience. And so it gained them this college fan base uh, to the point of where um, one of the quotes from The New Yorker was that this disc jockey, Joe O'Brien, said his son was a student at Yale and his son had told him that uh, the entire Yale campus was buying the album and his son's friends at Harvard said the entire Harvard student body had gone out and bought the album. Hmm. That's remarkable. You know what? Bruce is 100% right. We were getting older with them. Because what was interesting was when I was 10 or 11, you know, I wasn't learning how to play Beatles songs on the guitar. By the time Abbey Road is out, you're playing those songs, right? You're, you're in a band. Now you're actually playing them. So now you're starting to really appreciate them as musicians. I think, by the way, uh, there's three songs that exemplify that wacky part of them that was, you know, the John Cage kind of. You know, it started with Tomorrow Never Knows, and then it was kind of commercialized with Sgt. Pepper, and then it reached its zenith with Revolution Number 9. They were always doing some really outside stuff, which kind of helped the credibility of those people who wanted to be intellectually stretched out more. So I, I, they've always, they did it, and uh, and it was just so much to digest at the time it was happening. But you know what? The, I think the world between the release of that album and Magical Mystery Tour shifted like 180 degrees, don't you guys think, in the, in the period of well, six months? Well, also, also, it, it it made things go viral. All these questions, like if now we have social media, whatever. Back then, it, it got the kids talking. It, it was like you know, God, it created its own social media almost. You know what I mean? Um, you know, you, people were discussing an album, not a song. That's yeah. True. yeah, yeah. And that was the crazy thing about it was, um, and you know, one of the pieces that uh, Al Sussman had written, and I had kind of encouraged him to write it because it was something I had experienced was when you played pepper that first time you sensed you weren't alone that millions of other people in the u.s and britain and europe were doing the exact same thing yep. you know maybe maybe you were a few minutes ahead of them but they were all playing sergeant pepper that weekend and yeah. and there was no way to know it through social media you know you couldn't right. go online but you just instinctively knew it was a communal experience and what was kind of cool you know, 50 years later, when the um, deluxe edition comes out and, you know, people are sitting around listening to take one of a day in the life in Marvel. And they're thinking, you know, millions of other people must be doing similar to this. You know? <laughs> and that's that was what was really cool about it was, you know, you knew you were not alone. And, and then you go on social media and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, and people are showing pictures of the. Uh, Deluxe set sitting on their bookshelf and things. Oh, what I love you know, is, is cool. are the photos that people sent in for your book. Uh, one we printed in Goldmine was uh, uh, three girls sitting on the stoop of their stairs with uh, yeah. the gayfold, and it's so like who who poses with an album like that? It was like three boys coming home from a, a fishing expedition holding their prize catch, like a yeah. trout or something. You know, it's like. That, that was remarkable to me. Like they, they loved that the album well, I, so much, the experience. They had to take a picture of it. <laughs> I, I, think part, I think part of it really was the um, the maturation of the album as a format. Yeah, yeah. Like the statement that an album that, that a musical format is in the state is in is in a forty five minute disc, 
and not just in a seven inch single. Um, it, it legitimized the album. You know, another thing, Bruce, which I only thought about recently, and since you are a, uh, a, a sociologist, and, and maybe I'm really stretching this here, because I mentioned this to Pat the other day, but if you look at the starkness of the Meet the Beatles, right, the first album, and you look at the black and white starkness of it, right, and then you know that for the next three years, you heard Beatles and mono on the radio, because that's all we really had. We had Beatles and mono on the radio. So people said, I never heard Beatles and mono. Of course you did. That's what you heard on radio. You had AM radio. Yeah. You heard Beatles and mono. It's all you ever heard. Sergeant Pepper coincided with color television in the United States. Do you realize that? Yeah, by that time, uh, color TVs were pretty common, um, you know, once you got there and the years leading up to it, because... You know, if you look at TV Guide for 67, by then, most of the shows are being broadcast in color, meaning that there's enough people out there with color TVs to make it worth the while of spending the extra money. Oddly enough, American Bandstand is one of the few shows still being broadcast in black and white. <laughs> That's interesting because I have, just to show you, you know, uh, how young I am, I've got like F Troop, you know, the history of F Troop and all this other stuff. Yeah. And all the shows that go from 66 to 67, the 66 is black and white, 67 is color. Yep. And I and I look at the Beatles and I go revolver black and white, Sgt. Pepper color. Like yep. it almost, I'm not saying that they sat there and thought about it. I'm just saying that there's some sort of an equation to me about the technicolor aspect of Sgt. Pepper in so many ways against the starkness of what went on before them. Like it was like this, a giant illuminated cartoon. And I, and that, and I don't mean that in the way someone would use the word cartoon, but we really did take a technological leap in many ways. And the Beatles, as has always been their case, because they're the master of timing, was there at the right place at the right time to usher in that world. Mm, and yeah. they brought into this world a color, a color scheme that we had never seen before, ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a recording technique that had never been heard before, ever. And that's what makes it so good. So I have to say this, too. In, in 1987, on the 20th anniversary of the release of Sgt. Pepper, I was in London on June 20th. And on that day, HMV released Beatles on CD for the first time to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. I don't know, Bruce, if you, I, I'm sure you probably know that, but I, the point is I was in London. My wife worked for EMI at the time and she brought, she bought, she got ordered an entire stack of HMV special edition releases, right? Yeah. And, I, and I'm sitting here looking at my special edition HMV box set of Sgt. Pepper with the CD and a photo booklet with a history of Sgt. Pepper with all sorts of outtakes of the photo shoot. And I remember saying this to myself. I said, if they're doing this at the 20th anniversary, what are they going to do at the 50th anniversary? <laughs> I remember clearly saying to myself, these guys are marketing geniuses. They just, they're going to keep dribbling it out and dribbling it out. And, and Bruce, how long do you think they took five years to think about how they were going to do this? Um, honestly, no. <laughs> I, I think that uh, I think those, I Apple, think those and I'll, I'll tell you, Apple is really a one project at a time oriented operation. They've really been that way. And uh, I think that Apple obviously would know about the 50th anniversary, as would everyone. But I would if you're looking at the one project at a time aspect, you'd probably say, you know, once um, 
Ron Howard's film was in the can and ready to go at that point in time, full speed ahead on Sgt. Pepper. Mm. And I think that that's just the way Apple tends to roll things out. Um, well, you know, I think that obviously people thought about it well in advance. I know I thought about it well in advance. Uh, I thought about the 40th anniversary and what could be done then. But at the time, uh, nothing did come out. And uh, while at the time that was frustrating, by the time 50 rolls around, you're not in the situation where, you know, what do you do for pet sounds? You had a great 40th anniversary box. And <laughs> what do you do for the 50th? You know, uh, that wasn't the case here. There was no 40th pepper. So uh, when the 50th rolled out, there was so much for it. Um, you know, I, I really think that, uh, you know, Giles Martin did a, a great job with the stereo remix and then the balancing job of outtakes where Beatle fans such as myself would like every sound recorded. Well, obviously, the, you know, the Beatles don't want every sound recorded out. No, because there's so, many decades left. That's why. Yeah. You know, and so, well, what do you, what do, you do? Well, you, you pick outtakes that are interesting in show the development of the song and provide a good listening experience. Right. And I think that that mission was accomplished because I kind of had a checklist for the 40th anniversary and on my checklist were, whenever possible, take one of a song, because I want to hear that first moment of attempted creation. Uh, I clearly want to hear take one of a day in the life. You know, I want to hear a good version, a good clean version of that first mono remix of take six of a day in the life. Uh, you know, I want to hear the attempted hum at the end of the song of a day in the life, you know, and all these other things that I really wanted to hear. Um, you know, boom, they're there in the box. Uh, you know, would I have done things differently? Yeah, of course I would have. But, you know, that doesn't mean what was done was wrong by any means. And, you know, someone asked me, well, that said, you know, what do you grade it as? And, you know, a solid, solid A. I don't know how you can grade mm. it anything under that. Sure, there are a few little tweaks I might have done slightly differently. But overall, um, you know, it's a great listing experience. And you also learn, particularly those who didn't have the bootlegs, uh, that sequence of Strawberry Fields Forever with three totally different versions of the song with an extra John Lennon guidebook. It is amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then you follow it, and what I liked about it was after that you get a nice stereo remix, so you get, you know, from inception to finalization, and uh, to me that's just a great way to hear how a song progressed. Well, guys, I don't know if we'd be done with uh, Magical Mystery Tour, but I do love that album, too. But I just <laughs> I don't think they're rolling anything out for that one. Um, no, I, I don't think so. But I think at some point in time it might be given a deluxe treatment. There's a lot you could you could do with it. There are some good out, you know, fascinating outtakes from from those sessions as well. But, but you know, getting getting back quickly, though, the one funny thing was uh you know, where you all said you lo love the pictures. Yes. Uh, you know, when you go back and think about it uh, today, um, you know, I could have gotten hundreds, if not thousands of pictures of people, you know, with the Sgt. Pepper Deluxe Edition. But at the time, think about it. You've got photography that really, you know, we didn't have cameras on our cell phones back then, right? Right. Well, we didn't have cell phones back then. What we had <laughs> was a camera that was relatively expensive and then you had to pay for film and then once you were done with that you had to pay for the development of the film so mm. for that reason there was cost involved and so people were more 
careful about what they took pictures of. So as you said, you know, it was really cool that somebody thought enough of that album to get the picture. And then there was a kid on the bicycle in his family portrait with the Sergeant Pepper gatefold open. Uh, <laughs> I don't you know. think I think this was before Polaroid too, right? I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. So these were just little pictures people are taking, mm. and uh, and you notice in a couple of the pictures, the person taking the picture has no idea about photo composition. No, I mean it's you know it's terribly composed, <laughs> but it adds to the charm of the picture. Yes, uh, you know, and uh, and the girls sitting on the porch, you know, look. That that they're not sitting on the porch of a mansion somewhere. No, it's a house in Cleveland, desperately in need of a paint job. Yes, and, you know. <laughs> so these are people that had to save up their babysitting money to go out and buy the album. This isn't a case of someone in a mansion who, you know, mommy ran out and get, got him the latest Beatles album. Right. So you know, people really cared about this album passionately, and the yeah. pictures show that. I just want to read a quote. I just I'm holding on to the 20th anniversary special HMV release booklet. Yep. And here's a quote from 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 reviewer Langdon Winner. Are you ready? Yeah. And this quote speaks to your comment about the universal the universal uh, nature of this record. Langdon Winner wrote the week after the album came out. This was a, in some re, in some magazine he wrote so the release of Sgt. Pepper was the closest western civilization has come to unity since the Congress of Vienna in 1815. <laughs> That's the great quote, you know. I mean, I put it in my book. It was such a wonderful quote. And, uh, you know, and I think it, it says a lot about, about it. You know, the point was, as, as we all said, you didn't just listen to Sergeant Pepper. You didn't just dance to Sergeant Pepper. You talked about it with your friends. You thought about it. What does this mean? You know, what do you mean fixing a hole, you know? And, you know, and gee, isn't that a harpsichord? Oh who's, yeah, I remember that from the Adams family. Lurch plays the harpsichord. Yeah, who's Mr. Kite? I mean, come on. I mean, did yeah. you did you wonder who Mr. Kite was? I mean, what I what did. You... I didn't learn about the circus poster till much later. <laughs> Mr. Kite could have been some nefarious person. <laughs> it is kind of interesting. Well, but I guess we could get so uh to get your book, we could go right to beatles.net, right? By I'll Beatles, singular, B-E-A-T-L-E dot net. Gotcha. Absolutely. Right, and there's a collector's edition that's signed and numbered and comes with a uh, outer case and a poster and a bookmark and also entitles you to a free download of a PDF of the book. Very cool. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for taking the time. This is the Goldmine Podcast, and we'll be talking to you soon. And as you know, JJ's writing a column now on the Beatles. Uh, so we'll keep on reading that. Thank you. Okay, J.J. French of Twisted Sister and Bruce Spizer, a big-time author on the Beatles. Uh, now uh, we're going to come up with John Borak on the phone in a few minutes. But before that, I'd like to give a plug to a book I recommend on the Beatles by Crosby Books. Uh, it's a great book. It's called The Beatles, Fab Finds of the Fab Four. It's got about 700 images, color images in there, 240 pages. It's even got a free poster. And uh, what you'll find here is, God, the, the images are great, uh, the memorabilia images, and it takes you through the whole history of the Beatles via memorabilia. Um, it's it's really worth it. Uh, Crosbybooks.com. And okay, here we, here we have John on the line. John Borick, thanks for showing up for the first podcast, and we're going to talk a little Sergeant Pepper here. Uh, 
you unboxed the anniversary super deluxe edition. And I did. Yes. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Just the, the packaging and the, um, the presentation of, of everything. It's, it was, it was like rediscovering the album all over again. Did you, uh, what'd you think of the book? Did you get to read the book at all? I did. I read the entire book. Very informative. A few things, um, that I didn't know before the notes regarding the songs in particular and the different takes were very informative. Uh, really enjoyed that. And of course, some great photos as well. And a lot of historical, essays that sort of put everything into perspective uh what was going on back in 1967 both musically and culturally so very entertaining read definitely for those who don't know it's a 144 page hardback book uh it's introduction by mccartney correct yes uh, paul did the introduction and uh you know I, I i love the quote that's in there when he talks about uh you know it's crazy to think that 50 years later we're, we're looking back on sergeant pepper and with such fondness and a little bit of amazement that how four guys, a great producer and his engineers can make such a lasting piece of art. And boy, truer words were never spoken. The thing has lasted for 50 years and it's going to last at least another 50 and, and beyond just an incredible achievement. Plus let's also talk about the replica of the original card insert, right? Mm -hmm. Two bonus posters. Yeah. There's the, uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite poster, the one that John saw in the antique shop in London that gave him the, um, the idea to write the song in the first place. And, you know, pretty much all the lyrics are on this poster, you right. know, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, it talks about the Hendersons, uh, Pablo Fonky's fair and, and, uh, the celebrated horse and, and trampolines and somersets and everything else. It's, it's a, a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool thing to have. John had the original hanging on his wall for years, even after the Beatles broke up. And, and the replica card is kind of cool too. That's the original card insert. Yeah, with the cutouts and, and everything, and uh, yeah, the little Sergeant Pepper badges. Um, it's kind of funny. You're not you're not really sure who they were aiming at when that was when that originally was released because here they're trying to shed their uh, teeny bopper image, but they're inserting these little cutout cards. So it was kind of an interesting sort of uh, interesting sort of thing that they did there. Was it supposed to be ironic? You think? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's hard to tell. You know, I know. Uh, Capitol Records at that time and, and Brian Epstein, they were doing everything they could do to get the Beatles back in the public's good graces again. It was just after, you know, John Lennon's right. uh, The Beatles Are Bigger Than Christ uh, right. fiasco. So, um, you know, he had, he had mentioned that he and Capitol Records really wanted a hit, you know, in 1967 when the Penny Lane Strawberry Fields single was released. So maybe this was part of that just trying to give the public a little extra and you know something he thought the kids would would, uh, would like even though the music was a little more adult than it had been in the past right well let's tell our listeners who might be interested in buying this uh deluxe edition it's six discs uh four audio cds and then you have the blu-ray dvd um the four the first the first cd is the sergeant pepper stereo mix now you know, as far as what uh, Giles said, Giles said, you know, a lot of the experts, you know, he said the proper people, he called them, you know, he, he said this, <laughs> we're not making this record for you guys. We're making this record so that when you tell your kids about this album, when they put it on, they have the same, the same mind blowing experience as you did 50 years ago. 
Do you think it's the same mind-blowing experience as it was 50 years ago? You know, honestly, I think it's um, I think it's more of a mind-blowing experience because, you know, if you've lived with this album for many years, like so many of us have, and you hear the newly remixed stereo edition, um, you get so much more out of it. I mean, sonically, it sounds better just because the technology is, is better now. But, you know, what Giles Martin was able to do with the remix is he stayed true to the original, which was basically trying to stay true to the mono original, which is how the Beatles wanted it presented in the first place. Right. But was still able to bring out little things that you didn't hear before. So it sounds the same or it sounds similar. Um but it sounds better without sounding radically different. And that's a really tough, uh, tough thing to achieve, but he did do it. Mm. And just hearing this all over again, <clears throat> excuse me, in this, in this glorious stereo remix, it's, it's, it really is mind blowing. And, and, and if you're hearing it for the first time, I can't even imagine what you'd be thinking because, you know, even the most jaded Beatles fan who's, who's hearing this is thinking, Oh my gosh, this is, this is something special. It really is. Well, I'll tell you what I heard and what stood out for me, and you tell me if you agree with me. I, I, the first thing that came to mind is Ringo's drums just pop. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, the, and that was one of the exact words that I used when I, when I was making notes when I was listening is, yeah, the drums and the bass. Um, now And now some cynics have said, well, they made those two pop because those are the two Beatles who are still with us, but I don't believe that, you know, the, the, um, the, schmooze tactic. <clears throat> the rhythm section was always one of the most important uh, aspects of the band. And Ringo has gotten such short shrift over the years as far as his drumming ability. And if you listen to this, uh, you know, even on the uh, even on the um, demos and, and um, you know, previously unreleased uh, stuff, it's his drumming is amazing. You know, it. It sounds like you're in the room with him, first of all, especially when he's hitting the toms on, you know, songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and A Day in the Life. You know, it sounds just very present and you, you feel like you're in the studio with him when he's recording. But right. another aspect of the drumming that, you know, a lot of people might not pay attention to, but me being a drummer, I certainly noticed, is his really creative use of his hi-hat cymbals. Mm. And it's all over the album. It's, uh, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Fixing a Hole, uh, you know, just everywhere. He does some incredible stuff on there, making it almost another melodic instrument. It's pretty incredible. And then Paul's bass, which has gotten a lot of a lot of kudos over the years, well-deserved. You know, it's just so melodic on, on this album. It's, you know, as opposed to just holding down the rhythm, it's, you know, again, another melodic instrument that is just in incredible to hear. It's sort of a it's sort of a perfect balance now. But, you know. Every instrument um, with the new stereo mix, you know, every little nuance is brought out. Mm. So you hear things you didn't hear before, and what you did hear before, you hear more clearly. And and again, it's just you know the instruments are really breathing in the mix. And I mean, it's, I've uh, heard, yeah. Great. I mean, I've heard the critics, you know, say why why mess with something? You wouldn't uh, Photoshop the Mona Lisa. You know, I've heard, I, even Jeff Emmerich uh, has made a few comments. But you know something? 
I, I enjoyed it, and that's all it counts as a Beatles yeah. fan, right? Isn't that all? Oh it yeah, counts? so many, so many people are enjoying this, and again, from people who may have been cynical about it in, in the first place, but once they hear it, yeah, it's like, oh wow, this is just this is really something special, and yeah. it's not like it's some crazy. Oh, let let you know. Let's do a new dance remix of Sgt. Pepper or something <laughs> ridiculous like that. Like I mentioned earlier, he's staying true to the original and true to what the Beatles wanted, and just updating it with all the technology that's available now. And mm. you know, I could see them doing this on other Beatles albums. I mean, imagine how Abbey Road would sound, or or Revolver if they wanted to go back and do that. I mean, you know, if the masters are still available and and they want to do that, it's you know, it's it's certainly. It's it's wonderful to hear. It really is. Well, let's go to the second uh, disc, which is uh, early takes from the sessions. And, and they're sequenced in chronological order uh, of the first recording dates. And this is the, these are the sessions, uh, two songs that didn't make the album, uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, of course, and Penny Lane. Um, I love these takes. Uh, take one, you have this slow... Sort of, you can see why this didn't make the album, but I love Harrison's slide guitar. And then mm-hmm. take all the way to take 26, where it got sped up. Yeah, you know, it, that was pretty much just John experimenting. And, yep. you know, in the uh, in the video uh, that comes with the uh, box set, the making of Sgt. Pepper, uh, George Martin talks about that, as you know. And he mentions that John was trying a lot of different things in different fields and you know, take 26 had the brass on it where the earlier uh, takes and the earlier versions didn't have brass on it. And John wanted it to be, you know, a little more of, I guess, a freak out <laughs> to use a term that was popular at the time. And um, yeah, it, it does sound sort of chipmunk-esque. But <laughs> as as you know, that was sort of the, I think 26 was the take that they slowed down to yes. uh, merge with one of the earlier takes Yes. To uh, make the make the finished song. And, you know, when you listen to the finished song, you would never know. It's one of those in- incredible strokes of luck that, you know, groups like the Beatles had <laughs> happen to them. But, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting to hear the, all the songs, um, you know, the uh, the genesis of all of the songs. It and, is. It's and a- how they you know, was, you know, just came from li- from little ideas and then grew into something bigger. Exactly. And, and how the voice manipulation really did work. Uh, oh yeah, yep, yep. And what what else? What other on this disc? Was, was there something else that stood out for you? Oh gosh, um, you know a, a lot of interesting things that I read in the book as I was listening. Yeah. You know the book that uh, that accompanies it yeah. is that, um, and you can really hear this on a lot of the uh, the demos as well as the, the finished takes, but they miked Ringo's drums like never before. There, mm. There's a quote in there from one of the engineers saying that there were seven microphones on Ringo's drums, including a special microphone inside the bass drum, which is what makes everything sound so so powerful. Right. Um, you know, one of the uh, more interesting songs on there, I thought, was um, the version of When I'm 64. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really hear Paul's vocals because, you know, there's... A, a lot of the instruments are missing. It's mainly bass and drums and piano on on this version, mm. and you know you're re- you're really focusing on Paul's vocals as opposed to the backing, and it just proves what a great singer the, the the guy is. Because one minute he can just totally shred, as he does on Sergeant Pepper, 
on this on the title track and then he can sing like this little sort of vaudeville 1920s tune <laughs> sort of sort of croon it on on when i'm 64 the guy was such a versatile vocalist it's it's uh pretty pretty cool to hear it now cd3 is a continuation and there's more interesting stuff on that yeah the uh the vocals for on being for the benefit of mr kite um i think it's track number three um kind of some different phrasing on those vocals from from john lennon makes the song sound a bit more forceful to me i thought that was uh pretty interesting Hmm. and then hearing um track 12 which is the first take uh of the uh, instrumental for she's leaving home where uh Mike Leander did the score because George Martin was unavailable, <laughs> which, he re- which he regretted to his dying day, I'm sure. Um, hearing just take one of that song, what Paul had in his head when the musicians played it, you can tell that it was pretty much already fully formed. You know, take one doesn't sound all that different from the finished version of the, you know, the beautiful string arrangement. Hmm. So that was pretty cool to hear, too. And, now, and then you have uh, CD4, which is the mono album. Um, did you, did you listen to that again? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, really interesting. You know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, little different things going, going on. Um, you know, for example, on, on the title track right at the very end before it segues into with a little help from my friends, there's a little sort of guitar freak out there, um, Mm. that is not really, um, audible in the stereo mix, um, or at least in the original stereo mix. Right. Uh, the really interesting thing on on that uh, on disc four was the the bonus track, the first mono mix of A Day in the Life. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. That was yeah, that was really cool. The the drums there are just radically different, yeah. radically different, and you can tell that Ringo was just you know sort of feeling his way and experimenting like the rest of the band until he found something that sounded good. And you know while the drums here sound good, it's like I'm sure he thought I can do better. Or I can do something different, and then of course you have the finished take, uh, the version we all know, where his tom tom fills are just uh, are just off the chart, really creative yeah. and and great to hear. There's also like a countdown echo in there, isn't it? I can remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that just sounds out of place. <laughs> yeah, going go, going into the uh, going cacophony. Into the, uh, yeah, I think that's Mal Evans who was counting everything off, and it was also. His idea, Mal was the Beals roadie, of course, right. one of their roadies. Uh, it was also his his idea to set the alarm clock. So after 24 bars, <laughs> everyone would know when to come back in. And they just went ahead and left the alarm clock in the mix because you could do that in 1967 if you were the Beatles. <laughs> now you just use Pro Tools, which uh, to me isn't as, as, as exciting. Mm, um, no, no. <laughs> so you have, you have five and six, a Blu-ray and DVD, and uh, here you have a fully restored 1992 documentary, The Making of Sgt. Pepper, which you mentioned. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I probably had seen that before, but it yes. had been at least 25 years. And yes. uh, interesting to do a little research on that and find out that it originally premiered here in the U.S. on the Disney Channel. Inter- but, I didn't uh, know that, no. Yeah, sort of interesting. Uh, And in September of 1992, so it didn't really coincide with the month of the anniversary. But um, yeah, seeing seeing George Martin there talking about the the album was was really wonderful. And then, you know, seeing him kind of play with all the different tracks and kind of walk the viewer through what they did when they were recording and what the Beatles were trying to achieve was 
was was really cool. And then, of course, hearing Paul, George, and Ringo talk about the album and their experiences. You know, there's there's nothing like hearing yeah. hearing it from the source. And the promotional films are interesting. Always. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, although we've uh, we've already seen the uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane films because yeah. those were released on the Beatles one. Yes, they were. Seeing the uh, Day in the Life footage was pretty cool particularly when the uh you know when these stodgy old string musicians were you know wearing the the clown noses and everything else and you can see that in the video it was uh, a freak out man a freak out uh, yeah yeah it was uh, it was wild back in 1967 in swing in london that's for sure well you know then of course there's uh giles martin his 5.1 surround sound mix you know the high resolution stereo audio so, you know, he was really, um, he's very proud of that. Um, I didn't get to sample that. Did you get to sample that? I did not have the chance yeah. yet, but I hope to later this week because I yes. have a friend who has yes. that sort of audio setup. And, exactly. uh, you know, just listening to the stereo version on headphones mm. blew me away. I can't even imagine what surround sound, you know, sure. is, is going to do. But, you know, just listening to this on, on headphones, you sort of get taken away and, uh, swept up in the uh in in the just sort of the good vibe of the whole thing now you also um, now you also have the you also have the vinyl edition of this too yeah i listened to that last night as well how how do you compare you know it's it's pretty similar but of course vinyl just inherently has that little bit of warmer sound but um you know, it's 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 great to have it in any format, right. uh, and every format. You know, if 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 they put it out on cassette, I'd probably buy that. Well, but, it's two, um, it's a hundred eighty gram, right? Um, yeah, very. You know, the, the vinyl's heavy, definitely, and uh, the packaging is is cool. It's sort of a miniaturized version of the uh, of the deluxe box set. So it's got the uh, it's got um, Paul's quote or Paul's couple of paragraphs in there. It's got the history of, uh, you know, the essay about, uh, the album itself. And it's got, um, little paragraphs about the, uh, Sergeant Pepper sessions that are on the second. And album. it's got that insert again, right? <laughs> right. It does. In case it you want to play with it. In, it doesn't have all the inserts, no. but it does. It does have the one we spoke about earlier, the uh, cutouts. Well, it's yeah, two so albums. Wanna... It's two albums, yeah. right? And then mm-hmm. it has the, on the second album, it's got the takes, I think 13 songs. Uh... Yeah. And, and that mirrors the uh, running order of the album itself. Let's see. So yeah. the takes that they put on there is, is, uh, they're identical in, in order to the original album. So that's inter- interesting as well. I tell you, it's very cool. It's very cool. I mean, so if you had to give it a, uh, a rating since we do five stars, would you give it both five stars? I think I'd give it a six, <laughs> <laughs> six stars out of five. No, I, I mean, whether you're a Beatles fan or, you know, a huge Beatles fan or just a casual Beatles fan, okay. there's something here for you. I mean, yeah. in the in the deluxe box set, there's plenty here for you. You know, if you're a big fan, there's stuff you've never heard before. There's outtakes that have not even ever been bootlegged before. Um, and, you know, there's the video, which has never been officially released until now, the making of Sgt. Pepper. That was available on uh vhs let's see uh <laughs> no it, it was it, it had never actually been officially released i was going to try to use a synonym for for bootlegs but uh yeah, 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 it, yeah. it has been bootlegged many times but uh never officially released so yep. 
you know, just some stuff here that but we've the, all seen uh, hardcore Beatle fans yeah. have never heard. But we've all yeah. seen footage here and there. Okay, great. Well, John, thank you for taking the time. You're a longtime contributor, so we'll be seeing and hearing from you soon. All right. Thanks, thank Pat. you so much. Bye mm-hmm. now. Bye. Well, that pretty much wraps up our show. You, By now, you should have everything you need to know about Sgt. Pepper and it's uh, the reissues, the Sgt. Pepper editions that Universal has released, uh, courtesy of uh, producer Giles Martin, uh, Anniversary Edition 1 CD, Anniversary Deluxe Edition 2 CD, Anniversary Edition 2 LP, which John talked about a little and of course the super deluxe box set which we covered uh, very well in this episode okay well next episode will be here in a few weeks and i hope you enjoyed this one don't forget to go to goldminemag.com and you can find out how to subscribe and you can learn where to go to pick up the magazine thanks listeners and have a good one see you next time